Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles then uh, to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 8 together. Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if any of you kids have ever played the game Jenga before. Uh, It was a uh, a family favorite in our house. In Jenga, of course, you begin with this sort of table-sized tower of wooden blocks, and those blocks are are stacked in sort of a crisscross fashion, one on top of the other. And when you begin uh, the Jenga game, the tower is actually pretty sturdy, as long as you don't accidentally bump the table and knock it over. It stands pretty well on its own. But as the game is played... Uh, Players take turns uh, pulling one block out at a time. And as they remove blocks, what happens? Well, with every block that is removed, the tower becomes just a little bit more unstable. Until at last someone removes that final block that causes the whole structure to come crashing down on itself. Over these last couple of chapters sort of feel like Paul has been playing Jenga with the tower of man's pride and self-righteousness. And Paul has, in a very precise way, gone about this. He's crafted this one long, sustained argument, which stretches all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 3 in verse 20. And the whole point of Paul's argument as he removes one block 
after another is to demonstrate once and for all that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. As he will say in verses 9 through 10, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Like a careful prosecuting attorney, Paul has been building the case against the entirety of the human race. He began by charging the Gentiles with sin and how God's wrath from heaven is being revealed presently upon them, and that's evidenced by their sinfulness. Then he showed the certainty of God's judgment that it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you grew up under the law or you grew up without the law, all will be judged by a God of impartiality. And now he has been pressing and charging his fellow Jews as being under sin. And he has not treaded lightly. He has not pulled his punches. He has gone after the very things that they hold dear, the very things that have distinguished them from the nations around them. The fact that they had been given the law as the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The fact that they were given to be a light unto the nations and a guide to those who were in darkness. And above all, that they were given that covenant sign of circumcision. That physical sign that marked them out as different from the world around them. That they were God's covenant people. And yet one by one, (laughs) Paul has been pulling out these blocks of their excuses, the blocks of their objections. You might remember that that last block was a particularly important one, that block of circumcision. Paul argued that at the end of the day, circumcision was never meant to be something that was merely outward and physical, It was meant to be an outward sign that corresponded to an inward work of grace. And so he said, circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's by the Spirit, not by the letter. And it it may seem that as we read this, that Paul is being maybe a little bit more harsh with his fellow countrymen. But I think if he is, if he is particularly sharp with them, I think it is simply because of his great love for them. And I think it's because he hears in their obtuseness, their unwillingness to listen, and in their objections, an echo of himself. I think in them he hears the echo of his own former pride. Remember, the very things that he's now preaching are the very things that once fell upon his own deaf ears and hard heart. I even wonder, as I was, as I was rereading this, this week, I wonder if he, as he speaks about circumcision being a matter of the heart, I wonder if he is not transported back in his memory to that synagogue in Jerusalem. Back to that day where a faithful young Christian man preached to him and to his colleagues from all of the scriptures and called them to faith and to repentance. And he challenged them with these words, you're a stiff-necked people. You're uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears 
and you resist the Holy Spirit. Who was this young upstart, Stephen, to presume to teach Paul, the student of Gamaliel, Paul who had every reason for confidence in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet, though he might boast in circumcision, he was, as Stephen said, uncircumcised in his heart. He had every privilege, every privilege, and yet his heart was cold towards God. So cold, in fact, that the Bible tells us that the enraged crowd laid their heavy garments at his feet as they put Stephen to death. And Saul approved of his execution. You see, Paul sees himself in his objectors. He hears the echo of his own voice. Those were once his own objections before the Spirit took his scalpel and laid it to Paul's heart and did that wonderful work of regeneration. If Paul is pointed with them, I think it is only because he does not want to see them squander their privileges the way that he had squandered his. Today we're going to talk a lot about privileges. And we're going to talk about God's punishments because those are the two principal objections that Paul anticipates and answers. And so as we make our way through this passage then, we'll, just, we'll use those two objections as sort of the structure and our points this morning. But as we do, I think we need to see that, that as Paul answers these objections, we need to hear them every bit as much as his fellow countrymen did. And so our, our first point then will be looking at Paul's objections about their privileges. Verses 1 through 4, as Paul anticipates and answers the objection that if all people are sinners and deserving of God's judgment, then, then what advantage has the Jew? And secondly, we'll look at these objections about punishments in verses 5 through 8, as Paul anticipates and then answers the objection that if sin magnifies God's glory then it would be unjust to punish sin and that men should just do evil, that good may come. Paul takes these in turns and, and you'll notice as we look at these first objections about privileges, Paul has so effectively taken the foundation blocks out from under the feet of his Jewish countrymen that the, the whole tower is wobbling. And they're left asking, well, if what you are saying is true, if that is the case then what advantage has the Jew? You see, the Jews could have followed right along with Paul in all of his argument, in all of his condemnation of the Gentiles. But they were different. They were God's chosen people. They had the law. They had circumcision. Doesn't that count for anything? And Paul's answer was clear only if your heart has been circumcised. If you have circumcision, but you don't live as though your heart has been circumcised, then your circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision. 
well, what advantage is there at all then in being a Jew? And what advantage and what value is there to circumcision? And we might expect Paul to immediately say, well, there's no advantage at all. But that's not what he says. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says there is much advantage, much in every way, and chiefly that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, you'll notice that the ESV translates this word proton at the beginning of the sentence as to begin with, as though Paul were about to give us a list of privileges. Now, Paul is going to give a list of privileges later on in the book. In chapter 9, uh, where he speaks about how much he loves his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he lists their privileges. He says, I have great sorrow for them and, and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. In fact, I wish I could be accursed or cut off for them. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. He rattles off immediately this list. But here, in chapter 3, Paul doesn't give us a list. Instead, he just gives us the very prominent or main advantage. And so I think it's probably better, uh, rather than the way the ESV translates this, to, to simply translate this word as chiefly. What advantage has the Jew, much in every way, chiefly that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God? And I can tell you that there has been a good bit of ink spilled on what is meant by the oracles of God. Uh, some have suggested that here he's thinking very specifically of God's covenantal promises. Others suggest that he's referring to the messianic promises, prophecies, excuse me. Still others think he, he has in mind the Ten Commandments. I, I think it's probably better for us uh, not to limit to any one of those things in particular, but simply to understand that Paul is referring to the whole of Old Testament revelation, the whole package, with all of its promises, with all of its messianic prophecies, with all of its commandments, all of it, after all, speaks of Christ. And all of it was a remarkable privilege. The Jewish people grew up with God's special redemptive revelation. They had a privilege which had not been given to anyone else in the whole world, any other nation on the face of the earth. They had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and wisdom. They had the self-revelation of God's covenantal name. They knew the name of the living God of heaven and earth. They had the knowledge of His revealed will and the Ten Commandments, what they should do and what they ought not to do. They had the way of redemption mapped out in their sacrificial system. They had the promise and hope of an anointed Savior. They had every privilege. But the question is, what had they done with those privileges? What had they done with those privileges? Had they responded in faith? Verse 3 asks, what if some were 
unfaithful. Really, I think this is probably better translated, what if some were unbelieving? Every time that Paul uses this word in Romans, and in every case except for one, I think, in the New Testament, it refers to unbelief or to distrust. I don't think that the word means unfaithful so much as it means lacking in faith, but unfaithfulness and unbelief are very closely tied together. So I'm not going to make a big deal of this, but I, I do think he is thinking specifically of their unbelief. What, what Paul is asking here is, does the fact that so many of the Jews who were so privileged with the Word of God, does the fact that so many of them over the years have not believed, have not been circumcised in their hearts, have been unfaithful to God's covenant promises, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Does it say, well, see, God can't be all that great. He can't be all that good if, if his own people don't even believe. Does their unbelief somehow undermine God's faithfulness? And Paul's answer is a resounding no. By no means. We would say absolutely not. My friend Brad Williams puts it this way. He says, God's faithfulness is often in spite of us, though it is never dependent upon us. I like that. God's faithfulness is often in spite of us, but it is never dependent on us. It reminds me of what Paul says when he says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is always what he is. He is always true. Therefore, let God be true, though everyone is a liar. And what I think Paul is saying there is very simply, let God be seen to be what he is, that he is true, that he is, he's not just the message of truth. He is truth in and of himself. It, it is what he is. And to drive home this point, Paul then appeals to the words of probably one of the most privileged Israelites who ever lived. He appeals to the words of King David. David wrote these words in Psalm 51 after Nathan had confronted him about his sins of adultery and murder. David said of God that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's an argument from the, the greater to the lesser. If David's sin and unfaithfulness did not undermine God's faithfulness, if God was justified in his words toward David, then how much more true is it of us or of anyone? God will always be justified in his words. God will always prevail when he is judged. No one can lay a charge against God. In Paul's mind, that's ridiculous that you could charge God with injustice. God's righteousness is what gives definition to justice. And there is nothing that we can do to nullify that justice and righteousness of God, no matter how many or how great our privileges may be. Now, I want to I come back 
We'll circle back to this subject of privileges at the end, but for now, let's just go on to look at these next objections about punishments in verses 5 through 8. And, and these objections sort of build on the first, especially upon this idea that God might somehow be charged with unfaithfulness in judging His people. But before we get right into it, we need to understand uh, that while Paul is entertaining these objections, he does not for a moment believe that they are true. In fact, he, he does think they are utterly ridiculous. That's why as soon as he says them out loud, he feels the need to give this parenthetical qualification, I speak in a human way, right? That is to say that even entertaining the question requires me to resort to sort of fallacious human reasoning. I think if I was writing this, I would just say, this is crazy talk. Understand what I'm about to say here. These objections, this is crazy talk. It is crazy and slanderous to think that God's justice might actually be called in the question. Nevertheless, for the sake of answering this foolish objection once and for all, I'm going to articulate it. And so he says in verses 5 through 8, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You see, the objection reasons something like this. That if, if our sin brings greater glory to God by highlighting and showing His righteousness, then why does God punish people for sin? If it only serves to show His glory and His majesty and the perfection of His righteousness, then isn't God unjust to punish us? And the corollary would be, shouldn't we actually do more evil so that more good may come and more glory might resound unto God? And you see, there's actually a seed of truth in this objection, isn't there? And this is the way that, that arguments often are. They often contain a seed of truth or a half-truth. The true part is that our unrighteousness does serve to show the glory of God. That's true. There's a very real sense in which His glory and the perfections of His righteousness shine all the brighter against the backdrop of our sins. What is not true are the conclusions that the objector comes to. That this means that on the one hand, God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Or on the other hand, that we should do more evil that good may come. I think this is so often the case that when we argue, we begin with part of the truth and then we extrapolate ourselves into error. Well, Paul is not having it. He sees through it. He sees through it because he knows these arguments. They were his own faulty logic. And he rejects the conclusions flat out and in the most strident form. Again, by no means. It's 
unthinkable that the judge of all the world would be unjust. Remember back to the words of David, when God judges, he is absolutely justified in his judgments. And besides, Paul says, if your argument is correct, it actually proves too much. Because then how could God judge anyone? I know that you don't want to be judged, but you want the world to be judged. Well, how could God even judge the world if that was the case? Because certainly Gentile sin also magnifies the glory of God. It's not only unthinkable that God should punish unjustly, it's also unthinkable that any of us should presume to do evil in order that good may come. This is a sort of ancient version of an argument that we often hear today about the ends justifying the means. That as long as we have a good or higher goal, a higher end, then whatever means necessary toward that end are okay. Beloved, let me just say that you are never on safe ground to think that you may break God's commandments in order to establish some greater purpose. And Paul says, even if that purpose, even if your purpose is to glorify God more, <laughs> you are on unstable ground. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, I should just lie more. No, Paul says. Not only does he say no, he says, those who reason that way are justly condemned. And so Paul has just been meticulously pulling the blocks out one by one. And this is the final block. These final objections are the final blocks before the tower comes crashing down and all of their objections and their excuses lie scattered on the ground, and he can make his final conclusion in verses 9 and 10. We'll get to that next week. But he says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now before we stand back and point the finger at the Jewish people, I want for a moment just to circle back to this idea of privileges. And I want you to stop and to think about your own privileges as Christian people. The author of Hebrews says that the good news was preached to us just as it was to them, because the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The gospel was preached to us just as it was to them. It didn't benefit them because they didn't believe. And the author of Hebrews is saying, what are you going to do with the message that's preached to you? And he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There remains a rest to be entered. And so the gospel has been preached to you. Will it benefit you? And I want to press this home on you, and I especially want 
to press it home on our covenant youth. I was a covenant youth. Many of you, like me, have grown up in the church. You've had the privilege your whole life of sitting week in and week out under the preaching of the gospel. You've had the blessing of Christian parents. You've had the blessing of Christian baptism. You've been entrusted with the oracles of God, even from your youth, the the scriptures that make you wise into salvation. And so I want to ask, what are you doing with these privileges? Because all of these Christian privileges, as wonderful as they are, they will not benefit you unless you are actually resting and trusting in Christ. Unless you improve upon your baptism by faith. And that's not just for our covenant youth. That's for all of us, isn't it? That is true of all of us. Whatever privileges we have, it will not benefit us unless we are united in faith to Christ. If you, though baptized, live as though you were not baptized, see what I'm doing? I'm taking Paul's argument now about circumcision, and I'm applying it to you. If you, though baptized, live as though you were not baptized, if you live as though you have not been set apart to the Lord, as though you've not been united to him in faith, if, his, if you live, in fact, like you were just part of the world around you, your baptism becomes as unbaptism. Now, please do not misunderstand me. If you are struggling with your sins, and you hate your sins, and you want to be free of them, and you are striving in faith, I'm not asking you these questions to make you doubt your faith or your sincerity before the Lord. There is not one of us in this room that does not struggle with our sinfulness and long to be free of it and to throw ourselves more fully on our Savior. If that is where you're at, if you have a real struggle of faith, that's just the reality of the Christian life. It is a life of constant faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is not just something you do at the beginning. It's something that you do every single day and multiple times a day. It is the daily grind of putting to death your sins and living unto Christ. In fact, if that's your experience, you're making good on your privileges. That's what it means because that's what your baptism teaches you to do. It teaches you that you've died to sin and are alive to Christ, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. If that's what's going on, then praise the Lord. But I'm saying this to any who may not be wrestling with their sins, who may not be wrestling in faith, who even may be doing evil on the presumption that God will be gracious and do good. Who, Paul says, may be presuming on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 
And so I'm not saying this as your pastor to harm you or to make you feel guilty, but to warn you in love. Like Paul speaks to his people. I'm speaking to my people. I love you. And I don't want you... I don't want you to throw away your privileges. God's kindness calls you to repentance and faith. That is the goal of all of this. And so you see, beloved, if... You see, Paul would... Paul would have the Jenga tower come tumbling down and he would have all of your objections and excuses scattered on the ground if it means that you might be built up in Christ, if it means that you might be built up in faith. And so I hope that even today, the Lord is pulling out the blocks for you so that he might build you up in Christ, so that when all of your excuses are scattered on the ground, you might say with the hymn writer and the hymn that we're about to sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your word is like a sharp, two-edged sword that cuts to the heart, that divides between bone and marrow, that exposes us, that even causes the tower of our pride and self-righteousness to be scattered to the ground. And Lord, we pray that you would use this same word to build us up, to comfort us in Christ, to drive us to him, that we might look to him in faith and rest on him, that all of these privileges might be a great benefit to us, that we might rest in your goodness and kindness, that these things might bring us to repentance, your kindness and your goodness. Lord, I pray that you would help us Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith to rest and receive Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, the answer to all of this is not to do better or to double down on the law. The answer is to double down on Christ, our Savior, and his perfections. So give us grace to that end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now... You get one of your great privileges. As the covenant people of God, you are privileged every week to come to the Lord's table. This meal which reminds you of God's grace to you, which calls you to look back and do this in remembrance of Christ, who on that night when he was betrayed, took bread and said, this is my body given for you. And he took wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. And he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so every time we gather together, we have this privilege of coming and communing with Christ, of hearing him tell us again, no, really, my body is for you and my blood is for you, for you, 
as sinful as you are, they are for you. Take and eat and drink, so that as surely as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, as surely as bread and wine nourish the physical body, your soul might be nourished in Christ. And you get this privilege every week, beloved. You get to come and have your Savior speak these words of love and grace and kindness to you. If this, in fact, is one of your privileges. Because this privilege does not belong to everyone. It belongs to those who belong to Christ through faith. It belongs to those who are members of His church. And so if you belong to Christ, if you are a member of a, a, a Protestant church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, a Bible-believing church, and, and you are walking in faith and repentance, if you've been baptized into Christ, then you are welcome to come and to share in this privileged meal today. But if, if that is not true of you, let me just simply ask that you let these elements pass before you today. But I would also call upon you that even though you might let these elements pass, that you would not let Christ pass. That He is here to be received in faith and He promises to save anyone who calls upon His name. This privilege too might be yours. Come to Christ. Well, as we prepare to take this meal, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we approach Your table this morning, we, we know as sure as we know anything else, that we have no right in our flesh to come and and have communion with you. And yet, Lord, you call us to come. You have taken away our hearts of stone and you have given us hearts of flesh. You have made us to desire to walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And even though we do it so feebly and so ill, Nevertheless, Lord, you come at this table and you meet us and you assure us of your readiness to forgive all of our sins and to heal all of our diseases. And so, Lord, as we come this day, we come with broken and contrite hearts asking that you would speak tenderly to Jerusalem once again and tell us that all of your wrath has been paid for. And you tell us that even in these symbols themselves. And so, Lord, take these ordinary elements now, set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, that they might draw us ever closer to you. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.